it was great, man, for me to go through what I've been through and, um, you know, it, it really uh, understand, you know, why some of the things I did, you know, because of my past and what went on in my life. So it, it, I could never, you know, I don't blame anybody for none of my mishaps. Um, um, it's all on me, and um, I had a great run with basketball in general. That was former NBA star Kenny Anderson, and this is the J Reels Podcast. Hey everyone, what's poppin'? All's well? Everything good? Hope all is smooth and that everything is wonderful wherever you may be. Of course, you're listening to the J Reels Podcast. I am your host, J Reels. So if this is your first time tuning in, welcome to the podcast and thank you twice, more than once, for downloading and carving out some time in your day to hear the latest and greatest of what's going on in the world of sports. For those who have had the chance to listen to any of my previous shows, then welcome back. Goes without saying how much I appreciate all of you for taking the time, energy, effort, and interest in this podcast so I can entertain, engage, but most importantly, inform on what's happening on the world of the diamond, the gridiron, the hardwood, ice, golf course, racetrack, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. Today, my guest is one that doesn't need any introduction, especially around these parts of New York City. It's former NBA point guard Kenny Anderson. This is not just a deep dive on his NBA career, which spans over 14 years. We discuss life during and after playing in the association, coming to grips with some of the demons that have carried over from his playing days into the NBA afterlife, how he's coped with it, what he's learned from it, the compelling documentary Mr. Chibs, which chronicles who he is, where he comes from, where he's going, but what he's become. It's not just a serious portrait of a prodigy from Left Rack City in Queens, but we touch on other things that you may find fascinating about Kenny Anderson. Later on in the program, I'll share a few hot takes on the NHL and NBA postseason to date, the Knicks' new head coaching hire, the Mets cooling off, the Yankees taking off. And before we get to all of that, First up, my conversation with Kenny Anderson. All right, Kenny, so uh, to get started, uh, I'm sure a lot of people know what you've been up to these days, but for those who have been out of the loop, kind of keep us abreast of what Kenny Anderson's been up to these days. Well, after I retired, you know, I moved to uh, Florida. My my mother passed away in 2005. That's the same year I retired, so I moved down to Florida and my family my wife, and um, just I didn't know what I wanted to do at the time. So um, I went back to school and got my degree and, uh, and my bachelor's. My mother, I told my mother I was always going to go back to school. So I got it, you know, my bachelor's from St. Thomas University um, 20, in, in 2010. And, um, you know, I, I said I have to do something. So I just wanted to give back to the youth. So, I, I you know, I'm, I'm coaching youth basketball with a program called South Florida Elite. Um, travel ball, and um, I do camps, clinics. And in the process, I did my documentary, uh, which is great. It's about my life story. Um, Jill Campbell, my director, you know, shadowed me for about four years, and um, it, it came out last year. Premiered in New York, and I'm um, getting a lot of raves. Um, just you know, just being a, um, a New York prodigy, a child prodigy, and all the obstacles that I had to overcome to you know to get to. Uh, the NBA and just about life in general, you know, it's just a great documentary. I mean, everyone should should watch it. Yes, and in fact, it's on Amazon. I got a chance to peep it. It was fantastic from this regard because a lot of the documentaries, as you see, you know, of course they're going to 
talk about what went on in your life, yeah. you know, when you were a child going through. But to me, this was more about what's happening with Kenny Anderson now, and then they would intersperse with clips of you in high school, of you in college, you in the pros. And I actually like that as opposed to having this this is your life type of format. And then when they get to the mm-hmm. final whatever 10 minutes of the documentary, it's like, oh, this is what I'm doing today, which I thought was refreshing. Obviously, you mm-hmm. with your kids, reconnecting with them. And I'm sure that had to be tough, too, to actually have your life and people who have followed you throughout your career have it to the point where it's like, hey, this is me stripped down. You're going to see me from uh, from my worst to my best. I'm sure that had to be difficult uh, once Joe Campbell, the director, came up to you and said, hey, we're going to have to do this documentary in this way. How did you feel about that going in, knowing that this was going to be pretty much a whole good, bad, and ugly of Kenny Anderson? Um, I thought about it, me and my wife, for about a month. I wasn't sure if I was going to do it. And to tell the truth, if my mother was living, I don't know if I would have done it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew when I when we started it what, it what it has to be done. You know, everything was going, you know, all, on in the world, the news and everything, just craziness. So I said, I have to be that voice. I have to, you know, tell my story. I have to sacrifice myself to help others. And me and my wife said, yo, just give it to him. You know what I'm saying? Give it to him all. But it was done in a classy way and um, just to be honest. Um, and that's what we planned out, you know, planned out. And that's what we did. You see all these vanilla documentaries where, you know, they don't tell you the real. I wanted to tell the youth the real about, you know, what happened to Kenny Anderson going through it, you know what I mean? We're, you know, with the kids, you know, with the finances, with the failed marriages, with just everything and just, hey, this is me. And, um, you know, and, and I still can bounce back and have a productive life. It doesn't have to mean that you're, you're, everything is over because you stop playing basketball. So, and that's what I wanted to hit. It's not so much a highlight reel of me just playing ball. It's just, you know, about life. Absolutely. And uh, that's one of the things that I certainly found the compelling is that this is you the way you are now and showing your kids the mistakes that you've made and showing that I don't want them to grow up to be like me. And not only that, but it also shows a lot of accountability, first and foremost. And it's very authentic in that regard, because a lot of people this day and age, listen, we're all not perfect. We know that. But for someone who's come from where you where you're from, you know, from left rack here in the right in our backyard in New York City. Through the NBA to where you are now, it's certainly a cautionary tale, and it does take a lot of guts and courage to do that. So first off, much props to you for uh, putting that out there. And the name of the documentary is Mr. Chibs. It's on Amazon. Definitely go check it out. Um, So going back to sixth grade, because I know you've been recruited ever since then, my thing is, is that was there any pressure even back then to perform and live up to all the hype? Or were you just, you know, being a teenager oblivious to all of it, knowing that, hey, I'm just a kid playing basketball and this is what I love to do? Yeah, that was my outlet, basketball. I got good at it. Started getting a lot of praises. Uh, New York, um, the papers, uh, New York Daily News, Newsday, Sports Illustrator. I just was playing, man. I had a great supporting cast. My mentor, Vincent Smith, Pierre Turner, Jack Curran, um, you know, from Archbishop Malloy High School. I had a, a – just. And I listen for some reason, you know, for some reason, I like to say, because nowadays, a lot of uh, this generation, we don't listen. I listen to my guys, um, and I, I followed instructions well and listened to details and just wanted to do right and get my mother out of the struggle. And the one, the one thing that I was able to do was play basketball. So I wanted to, uh, you know, I, I could, my mother couldn't afford college, so I needed a college scholarship. So, I, you know, I wanted to get one. So uh, anything... 
um, that got in the way of that, you know, I kind of avoided it, you know what I'm saying, and um, went on. I wasn't thinking about pros that early. I just wanted to go to college and, um, you know, have my mother be proud of me. Right, and I know one of the things in the documentary is that you said that you actually would have liked to have stayed for your junior and maybe even senior year, which in this day and age, you know, everybody's one and done. Yeah. Uh, thinking back on that, uh, if you had to do it over again, would you have gone back to at least uh, performing your junior year at Georgia Tech? I would have liked to, you know what I mean? I wasn't in no desperate need for money or anything. I was just enjoying myself. It was so pure, you know. I, I just wasn't in a rush, you know. Um, you feel what you don't know on the other side, and I'm I know the money was there, but I, I really didn't care at that moment, you know. Um, but my coach did all the research, um, and I was going one, two, or three, so I had to go. But I wasn't in no hurry to leave um, to go pro. I, you know, I wanted to take care of my mother, but um, I wasn't. We was okay, you know. We, we could have dealt with another year, you know, living the way we was living. Right. Um, I, I enjoyed Georgia Tech. I enjoyed Atlanta. I enjoyed the people. I, I just had no worries. All I had to do was go to class. Um, it just was fun for me, you know, um, and, and that's what it was all about for me. I don't know for other kids, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I, I enjoyed the college experience. I really did. No, and that's one of the things, too, that you don't get in this day and age because a lot of the kids, and rightfully so, they're one and done. They go to all the main colleges that we've come to, accustomed to, the Dukes, the Kentuckys, Kansases, that pretty much one year and that's it. And to think – your two years, obviously you made a tremendous impact down there at Georgia Tech, made it to a Final Four, I know against the powerhouse of UNLV. Uh, what was that like leading up to that, knowing how stacked that UNLV team was? And even though your team was stacked too with uh, 3D Dennis Scott and uh, Brian Oliver, uh, what was that like that week leading up to the Final Four, knowing you were going up against the running Rebels? Oh, it was great, man. Um, I'm a competitor. You know, I was born, born with that growing up in New York City. I always wanted to play against the best. And they was the best that year. So everybody was like how great they were. But I just had so much confidence in Georgia Tech and Lethal Weapon 3 and my my team. So I was excited, man. I was ready to ball. And, um, you know, they was deep. And um, it was was an exciting game back and forth. I got in foul trouble. And we lost by 8 to 10 points, something like that. But it was uh, competitive. And, um, you know, it was a great ride my freshman year. Right, and then obviously it was after your sophomore year that you went to the NBA. And before we get to the NBA, I don't know what's going on. And maybe because of the world we live in, it's uh, a lot of kids are different, you know, into different things. But why do you think, as much as New York City has been pretty much the birthplace for New York City point guards, and we could go through the whole list, but why do you think here in 2018, especially in the last five, six years, we haven't had a kid that's come up and has had that acclaim that you've had, that Kenny Smith's had, Rod Strickland, Mark Jackson, Pearl Washington. Why is it that we haven't had that next point guard to come into the league to take it by storm like you did and all the others before you? Uh, I think the, the basketball is a lot different. You know, we had summer leagues, you know, all these tournaments. We didn't have to travel, like, for this AAU ball and all that. And we had summer leagues in each of the barrels. Right. So you played a lot of um, the mentors was a lot different, and I think, you know, I think a little bit different programs. I'm not telling all the programs, but some travel ball or AU programs are not good for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also high school and some of the environment, some of the great players, the environment, they have to get out of New York, so they go to prep schools and things of that nature. But the, the, the game and the era was a lot different back when I was growing up in the 80s, um, the mid-80s, uh, just New York. The whole, um, the whole realm of it, 
the how the the media accepted it. You know, um, how they covered it. They they don't cover high school basketball like they used to. And um, a lot of the kids, you know, they're doing all the things. They want to be rappers. They want to, you know, do do different things now. You know what I mean? So it's not really New York is not really uh, basketball uh, heavy like it was, you know, back in the days. No, and that's true, and it's a shame too because we have so many great point guards. Obviously, you included that for this generation, even for future generations, they're going to look back and going to say, hey, what's going on? Why haven't we had that next great point guard? You know, pretty much Sebastian Telfair, and we know he hadn't really had a good NBA career, but he was like the last kid that had all this acclaim, all this uh, hype going into the NBA, and that was 2004. And here we are in 2018, and we're still waiting for that next guy. But, you know, hopefully somebody out there is dribbling the basketball and uh, will follow in uh, your footsteps, that's for sure. Yeah, my guy Pons at St. John's. He's a New York guy, the point guard. I love his game. He might be the guy. Right. Uh, no, and that would be great because that's the one thing a lot of New Yorkers – and I'm a couple years older than you. I think I'm just a year older than you, Kenny. I'm 49. But yeah. it's one of those things okay. where, yeah, you, you as much as I followed sports and I followed you know, a lot of the kids, that whether they played playground or Rucker or whatever it may be, and to think that it's been over a decade since we've had that next great point guard, or even next great player for that matter – you know, it, it, yeah. it's almost as if the, the the New Yorkers are starving for that next guy to just to kind of come up and just, you know, not only take the city by storm, but go into the NBA and take the league by storm. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get it in time, you know what I mean? It's got to just, like, it's, it's so many, it's so many people playing basketball, trying to get to the NBA level, and, what, 1% makes it? to that level, you know, um, so, and then they're making it even harder with all these European players coming from, you know, from overseas, you know, um, uh-huh. you know, for the Americans to get a job in the NBA. So it's, you got to be special and yeah. you got to keep working. No, oh, absolutely. And speaking of which, going into the NBA, number two pick overall, 91, obviously had a rough rookie year, you know, obviously I'm sure it didn't go the way it was planned, but that second year, that's when you certainly burst onto the scene and came into your own uh, what was it like playing on that team? I know you had Chuck Daly was your coach. Obviously, you had Derek Coleman, yeah. Drazen Petrovic, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, that second year, I'm sure when things were starting to click, you must have felt that, you know, we're going to have a good team for years to come considering the talent that you had around you. Yeah, we had a great year playing with Drazen, Derek Coleman, coached by Chuck Daly. New Jersey, man, my, I played five years there. had a lovely time playing in New Jersey back home, the metropolitan area. Some of the reporters that followed me in high school was following me in the NBA, and I was able to see my high school coach and my, my mentor. It, it was a great ride, you know. You just never know. I always wonder if uh, Drazen Petrovic wouldn't have you know, gotten that tragic car accident and he would have signed back and we would have kept us three together, how how, how the future would look for the uh, New Jersey Nets. You know, I always wonder, man. We, we, had, great, uh, we had a great team. And for those who don't know, Drazen Petrovic was uh, from Croatia. He was a deadly three-point shooter. Was certainly coming into his own. And uh, cool. yeah, and I can't even imagine what that must have been like uh, having a teammate or a brother on the court, knowing that uh, you know the following year you weren't even going to play with him or see him ever again. Yeah, really sad, man. Um, going too soon was a great player, one of the first to come over from Europe and and, 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 and he just wanted to belong. He wanted to be a, that all-star type of player and one of the best in the NBA and he accomplished it, but he, he had more to give, you know, to the NBA and, and he, he just, he's gone too soon, man. But uh, he was a great, great teammate, 
great, great guy. Work, you know, he's a workaholic. Come an hour before practice, leave an hour and a half after you know practice, working on his game. He just wanted to belong and wanted to be one of the best. Right, and then uh, with your time at the Nets, uh, I know considering everything that happened in your career, I was curious to find out. Do you, was it a blessing not only to be drafted and play in the metropolitan area, but you also feel it was a, a curse considering that you had family, friends, everybody here in your backyard that maybe started the ball going in the wrong direction for you as far as not necessarily for your career because you played a long time, but just yeah. as far as the off-the-court stuff. Do you think that that was a blessing or a curse being drafted and playing here in New Jersey? Yeah, that's the cliche part of it when somebody gets drafted to their hometown and they don't start off with, oh, maybe you should have been – you know, out with, no, I don't look at it like that, man. I, That's good. Certain breaks, I came in, you know, um, as far as the business tip, you know, nobody really know about this. I just believe, you know, um, Bill Fitch wanted to uh, draft, I think, Billy Owens and uh, Willis Reed wanted to draft me. So I And I held out training camp for, for more money. So I was behind the eight ball going into my rookie year and got into a little spat in the middle of something that I didn't know nothing about until later on. And um, the coach got fired and they brought in Chuck Bailey and then I began to do my thing. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Everybody with the nightlife and uh, um, being back home and being that guy, the number one guy in New, New Jersey with me and Derek and being an all-city, all-American out of New York, yeah, I don't know. But I had a great time with trading in for the world. Certain things just don't, you know, line up for you, and that's just life, you know. Um, you know, so you just got to, you know, move on. Um, I was an all star in 1994, and, 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 and things it worked out. But then I think the team, the, the team itself, we had seven owners, just was no stability in the organization. Everybody was comfortable after drives passed, everybody was comfortable about being mediocre. Mm. You know, that's all they wanted to do. Derek Coleman got traded. Rising pass. I was on the island by myself, and I just thought it was time for me to move on. But um, wouldn't trade it in for the world. I love I love uh, playing in New Jersey. Right, and then you guys had traded to Charlotte, then from there to Toronto, yeah. and then uh, obviously you don't want to play in Toronto. They got traded to the Celtics, and believe it or not, Kenny, I've lived in New York just about my whole life, and I'm actually a Celtic fan. And I love it that you're on Twitter rocking all the Celtic gear, especially with the way that you know how yeah. great they're playing so far in this postseason. But I want to yeah. go back to that 0102 season when you played, obviously with Antoine Walker, Paul Pierce, uh, Walter yeah. McCarty, and you had that great series against your old team, the New Jersey Nets, especially that crazy game three when you're down 26 points in the third yeah. quarter. Uh, kind of take us back to that game in specific, specifically, knowing that you were down by 26, you're at home, the series was t- tied at one. What was it that got into you guys that made this remarkable comeback, which was one of the greatest NBA comebacks in uh, playoff history? Well, we just wanted to make it respectful. We was down by 23. Uh, Antoine Walker grabbed everybody and said, hey, man, we playing like a bunch of blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, we just said, you know what, let's go out there and, and just strap on our hard, uh, our hard hat and just compete. And all of a sudden, we started digging in defensively, getting stops and making a run. And, man, it just changed. Uh, the garden was going crazy. And um, it was a great experience. And I believe it or not, I, I thought we had broke them after coming back mm. and being up two rooms going with that series. And all, and all all season, we handled the Nets pretty well. Also, I just thought we took it for granted that we was going to go, we was going, we was on our way uh, to go to the finals. I really believe that Jason Kidd 
and those guys had a different attitude. And, and they was they they knew that we was competitive. They came into that series ready to do work. And when we came back from that large uh, deficit, I thought they had broke their their spirit and their confidence. But they was a uh, resilient group, and they played extremely well. And it was ironic that I was playing against my old team, New Jersey Nets. And they, and, they, and I got to tell all my fans, you know, I always. You know, the Celtics send me everything. They stay in touch with me. Hmm. The, the Nets, I got love for, but it's all turned over. Right. Trailblazers, New, uh, New Jersey, and the Celtics. Those are the three teams I give all the love to. And because I was, I played and got my handprint on all those three teams. I played 35 plus minutes, and I did my thing with those three teams. So those are the teams I cheer for and want them to do well. But, um, you know, the Celtics is in a great tradition. I played five years for the Celtics, five years with the Nets, about two years with the Blazers. And that, that was a great organization, too. So I, I was really blessed to play with those three organizations and really put forth a great effort and was one of those guys, the key guys, to, to those franchises for a while. And I respect that. When you played in Portland, obviously you were still very effective. You were still – yeah. You know, at the at the top of your game. But when did when, as you're getting close to the end, because I'm sure it went by in the blink of an eye, you know, your career, uh yeah. you know, looking back, was there one moment that stuck out more than another? I understand you, you know, never played an NBA final. I know that I'm sure that, that was the one thing you maybe on the court regret not yeah. being able to do. But is there one moment in your NBA career that sticks out more than the rest? Well, I was this is personal, but I'll get it off my chest. I just think Boston, when we went to the Eastern Conference Finals, I had one more year on my contract, and I was going into my free agent year. I was I was so hyped, and I, I thought we had a great run in the Eastern Conference Finals, and I got traded. And um, I remember, you know, at home in Atlanta, I got the phone calls in the summer, and um, I was traded, you know, all the way out west to a Gary Payton Seattle team. I played point guard. He's one of the best all-time guards. He played there 20 years. I was, like, de- devastated. And I just sat home and I cried. I cried for about 30 minutes mm. because I, I just thought I did so much so well there in Boston. I thought I had my niche. I thought I was going to have another year to go after it. And then I would have been able to follow the business decision. They really screwed me. They really screwed me, wow. you know, because they had traded me my last year, my contract. And I was like, wow, I, I would have made another, I would have got another deal for three to four years. After that, I got traded to Seattle, so I was bummed. I, my, my passion for the game, I lost it right there. Oh, wow. And then the last three years of my career, I just hung around and bullshitted around. And I'll be honest with you, because I was devastated. I, was, I let that stuff affect me by getting traded from Boston, the heaviest. It was a really blow to my heart um, in the game that I loved. I didn't, I, the business side of it just broke me down. And I was like, man, I am... I am really devastated. And that's something I will always remember leaving Boston like I left it. And I left on a high because you leave on a high when you did that, and it was off season. And we just had lost in the Eastern Conference Final. So I was ready to work out. I was ready to get my train on. I was like, yo, next year I'm coming back. Boom. And then I, I get a phone call, I'm traded. So I was just devastated. Those final years that you said you didn't have the passion, do you feel as if that was maybe the beginning of things spiraling out of control, what was going on off the court in reference to your career and how you felt about the game of basketball? Oh, yeah, definitely. You know what I'm saying? I didn't really want to play no more. I was just collecting a check. So I was just like doing whatever that made me happy. 
And um, I just, you know, when you're a veteran, you work out. You want to take care of yourself and work out, but you never know when you're gonna get in the game. So you know, you, you just sit on the bench, and I'm like, nah, I ain't coming like this. I ain't going out like this. And 2005, that was the worst year of my life because my mother passed away, and then I retired. You know, and then everything hit me all at once. But I had good foundation. I had my wife. She kind of saved me. She's a great woman. Been around 14 years now. Wow. Um, my kids, and you know, it was it was uh, it was great, man, for me to go through what I've been through, and um. You know, like, really uh, understand, you know, why some of the things I did, you know, because of my past, what went on in my life. So it, it, I could never, you know, I don't blame anybody for none of my mishaps. Um, um, it's all on me, and um, I had a great run with basketball in general. I've been, a, I've been, I've, I've done it on every level. So I can look in the mirror, say I was one of the best that did it on the high school level, college level, pro level. And I, I, you know, I didn't win a championship. I, I didn't. I didn't play another three, four years. I have longevity, so maybe I can get better. You know, better numbers. Right. <laughs> if I would have played, you know, a couple, uh, some years and played thirty-five plus minutes, believe me, you, I would have different numbers. No, <laughs> but you know, things happen. You <laughs> see, yeah, but that's the main thing. The opportunities when you get older, you, they start a few. You don't get you don't get them like you used to when you're young. So, you know, it's just life, man. You just you just move on from it. I had a great run. No, and that's great, man. And one thing I love is that you being stand up about it and holding yourself accountable. And more more importantly, like I said earlier, is just being authentic. Because listen, we all are different. We all yeah. make mistakes, etc. But for you to be able to not only admit that, but it's tough. You know, as yeah. as you know, people they don't seem to evolve or seem to change. And obviously, you made a change for a better. You're doing a lot with the kids right now. And I'm gonna get to your uh, yeah. camp that you're gonna have in uh, Brooklyn on June 16th. So uh, before yeah. we get to that, I just want to say, you know, much props to you because I know I've had some struggles. Obviously, I never played in the NBA, or yeah. you know, but I know that I had to overcome a lot of things that I needed to do to get better. And to hear a, a former athlete that had everything, you know, the the, the glitz, the glam, yeah. you know, obviously the the, yeah. the fame, and for you to be humbled and to be brought back down to earth, it speaks a lot about you. And I could only hope there's a lot of other, not just athletes, but people who follow that same path. Yeah. Yeah, it's life, man, and um, you got to realize that it's great, you know, that I could uh, look back and, you know, sacrifice myself to help others, and, and that's all I did. And uh, let everybody know it's uh, it, it, it's not all what you you know what you see. It's uh, it, it's it's uh, it's it's a struggle at times. I don't care who you are, right. you know, doctors, lawyers, school teacher, fire firemen. Uh, police officer, garbage man, I don't care who you are. You, you <laughs> just have problems in life, you know what I mean? And uh, you got to know, every, every time, we all going to have to eat the humble pie. You know, like I always say, you know, we, we don't like how the humble pie tastes, but it's good for our soul. That's right. And, um, you know, that's just uh, what I'm going through and um, living a positive life. And I'm living a good life because I'm still kidding. You know, I, I don't want to, you know, blow my own horn or whatever, but I'm still Kenny Anderson. And, um, you know, I, I did a lot in the game of basketball, and I can give back and teach some of these young guys that's trying to get to my level. And that's what I've been doing with all my camps. I'm trying to bring my point guard camps to every city. You know, I did one in Norfolk, and then I'm doing one in New York. And I just don't give them, you know, drills and all of that work, but I give them life lessons. I like the more seminars when I sit down with those kids and talk to them about life. 
that's the most joy I get out of it. You know, because it's easy for me to teach them how to come off a screen, teach them about a crossover, right. uh, behind the back, coming off the pick and roll, jumper, all that stuff about basketball is easy for me. Yes. But the life lessons that got these, some of these kids can go home with, you know, with, it, it might help them in their lives, what they're going through. So it's really great, you know, that um that I'm doing these camps, these point guard camps. Right, and the one I was referring to earlier, which is uh, June 16th here in uh, Brooklyn uh, from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m., the Kenny Anderson Point Guard Camp. Uh, tell us a little bit about it, where they can look for some information on that website and uh, to get signed up for that. Yeah, um, uh, Sepsion Sports, it's on the flyer. You could go register, you know, there on there. Uh, my team with uh, um, Sepsion Sports is doing it. They've been, you know, doing all my camps for me, marketing, uh, they're doing a hell of a job. We got uh, Achievement First High School in Brooklyn, um, right down near the Barclays Center. This is my first big camp coming back home. Nice. So I'm very excited that it could, it could happen. You know what I mean? Um, so we're going to see. Um, it's going to be great. Like I said, I had 125 kids in my first one in Norfolk, Virginia, wow. um, about three weeks ago. So I'm excited about it, and we're trying to uh, reach out and do these things all over in different cities. And um, I think uh, the, the parents of these kids will get a big kick out of it and really enjoy it. It's just not me. It's just I'm not over there just taking pictures, hanging out. Now I'm I'm in. You know I'm 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 in with these kids, and then that's what it's all about. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And uh, and uh, I'm excited about it. You know what I mean? So no, as you I can't, should. I can't wait. No, that's great, and uh, I'm sure a lot of yeah. people are gonna look forward to uh, participate in that, and of course uh, see you come back. Uh, not of course in Queens, but just back in Brooklyn on June sixteenth. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Now, a few quick things before I let you go, Kenny. Um, one, the game today obviously is much different today than it was back then. Uh, it's all about three point shooting. Uh, even having seven footers out behind the three point line. You saw last night Joel and B yeah. taking a lot of threes toward the end of the game. But yeah. uh, what what's your feeling about the game today? It's changed. It's take, I don't I don't think it's take a step back because it's a billion dollar business. The NBA is fan friendly entertainment. But it has changed. Stretch four, small ball, uh, shooting more threes, uh, less contact, you know, so the games is more exciting. You get a hundred and something points in the playoffs. You know, that's unheard of when we played. It's really, it was hard on the eyes sometimes in the yeah. 90s uh-huh. because guys was more physical and, and, and competed. I just think a little bit, I'm a, I'm a fan of the NBA. I love it. But I just think a lot of these guys, it's, it's, it's so friendly with each other. You know what I mean? It's uh, you, know, you got to compete, man. Yeah. You know, it just, it just don't. You got to just walk around the court. You know, right? Ala LeBron, LeBron is just awesome. He's the best in the world. Oh yeah. You know, hands down, he's there. This era is Michael Jordan, LeBron. But they so no one is no. It's, they don't attack him. Make him feel something. He just roams around like all the guards. And if you're able to do that, it just just didn't look. It just looked real like a, like a pickup game. You know what I mean? It's just defensively, it looked like, I understand great players going to make great shots, but just make it uncomfortable for them. You know, I'm not even talking about LeBron. I'm talking about the point guards, the two guards, right. the fours. It's a, it's a lot softer, you know what I mean, in the league. Now, you know, you got the big guys. There's no more go down to the block and bang, you know. And I don't know if that was great for the fans and the entertainment of it, but. It's uh, you cannot knock it because it's uh, it's a billion dollar business and it's growing and it's just doing well. 
And now to your playing days, what was the one point guard that wherever city you went to or whenever they came to uh, visit the arena that you looked at and you said, oh, geez, I got to go up against this guy tonight? Yeah, everyone, really, you know, but the guy was Allen Iverson, but it was all competitive. It was all in the mind of you mentally. You got to be mentally strong, but Allen was like a, you know, he's a, 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 a one, a two in a one's body. So he shot the ball a lot. He put a lot of pressure on you and he ran. They set a lot of screens for him and to get him off the ball. And it was just really draining, you know, uh, to play against him. And uh, he's a little tough as nails. Little guy, tough as nails, man. Got a lot of respect for him. Great player. No, absolutely. And what was your favorite arena to play in? Oh man, I used to, I used to <laughs> I had uh, the Forum and Spectrum. Oh. I used to love the Spectrum in Philly. I I played there. I like I love the Forum out in L.A. Oh man, I, I those two um, New York because I, I, I love the Garden because I was I grew up in New York. Oh, yeah. And to be on that stage. You know, it was awesome. You know, all my friends and family could watch. And just New York, man, that's what it's all about. And uh, also, uh, as far as, like, teammates are concerned or your old teammates, who, who was a guy that you just gravitated to in the league, whether it was when you were a rookie or even later on? Like, what was one of your favorite teammates that you played with? Oh, I had a, a great guy, you know, Raphael Addison from New Jer- uh, from Syracuse when I was with New Jersey. And then when I got traded for Charlotte, he was on that team. Um, he's a great guy, great teammate. We talked a lot. We went out to eat a lot, hung out. Um, I really wasn't, you know, from my past and what happened to me and whatever growing up, I really was a, like a loner. Did a lot of stuff on my own. And that's what uh, could be difficult at times. And that's why I tell kids now, build relationships through these organizations because you never know when you want to go back and coach or work for them. You know, I really didn't network when I played in the league. And that's probably a negative on my part. But it was just the type of person I was, you know. And now when you get out and you brand in yourself, it's a lot harder, a lot, different, a lot difficult. But it's great, though. You just got to do all the things on your own. You know, I like to say it's a lot of politics in the lead. And, you know, if you're not in with those guys, one of those guys that know somebody, your agent might know or the GM, and the GM might have played with you or might have been around you and know you, you know, that's why these guys are getting jobs. You know what I mean? Right. You know, a guy that never – never, you know, did anything, just played and went home and did his own thing is real difficult because they don't know you, you know. It's it's all about perception. And sometimes perception is is, is confusing, you know what I mean, because that's that's just how life works. So it's not uh, what you know, it's who you know. Because one day, I don't know, I don't like it, you know, right now. I don't really want to coach on the pro level (laughs) or the college level. That's not in me right now. I, I really just, I, I love the youth because I think it's more rewarding and I can help those kids get to where I went to. Um, if anything, in the lead, if someone gave me a shot, I would like to be a player development guy so I don't have to deal with all the other stuff. I could just deal with the players, go work them out and, you know, to, to, to develop them. That's what something I would like to do. I just don't want to be the coach. Right. Of a, uh, I don't even want to be an assistant coach. I don't want to do that. You know, that's just me. I'd rather be a de- player development guy because I have so much to offer and I don't want to just be a guy holding a pad without a voice. I don't really want that. You know, for the perks and for the check, I'll take that, but I wouldn't be passionate about it. Right. And, and that's real. That's real. That is. Nah, I got to give it up to you for that. That's, that's definitely real. And uh, last thing, Kenny, uh, if there was anything that you could do differently, uh, whether it's in your career or anything, what would it be? I probably would have worked harder, 
you know, um, down the stretch of my uh, uh, pro career. I, I got I got sidetracked it and um, just did, I stopped working. You know, uh, late in my career, thirty thirty something. I just like said the hell. You know, <laughs> I, I just didn't want to. I just didn't work hard enough. So I would have I would have worked harder harder late in my years. I let other stuff that I had no control affect me. Right. And that's the trades and things of that nature. I, I would have just said later for that and still worked uh, much harder to do that. Well, Kenny, listen, I appreciate a half hour, though. Thank you so much for taking the time out. And, uh, yes, I'll make sure to have not only the point guard camp, I'll put that up on uh, my website. Yeah, I appreciate that. Oh, yeah, most yeah, definitely. that from me. And also, uh, Mr. Chibs, definitely check that out, people. Streaming on Amazon yeah, right you. now. Oh, without question. And, uh, Kenny, hey, listen, it's uh, my pleasure and an honor to uh, have the chance to, to interview. Yeah, man. Thanks, man. Good interview. Thank you. All right, guys, what do you think? Fascinating stuff, huh? Many thanks to Kenny Anderson for spending a few moments with me to share his story. He gave me about 35 minutes. Roughly, I wanted about 20, and trust me, I could have asked him several other questions, but I was gracious enough for him to give me the time that he had. It takes a lot of courage to set your ego aside to admit the mistakes that he made over the course of a life, let alone career. There are many people, forget about athletes, that can't or won't look in the mirror to assess whatever damage they've made in other people's lives, most importantly, their own lives. People always look to play the victim or point fingers for not holding themselves accountable for their actions. Kenny sure seems to have gotten it as he moves on with life. Not only that, but also to bestow the wisdom and knowledge for others not to make the same mistakes he made with his. In the show notes, you'll see all the links to his social media accounts if you want to follow Kenny. Uh, just some information on the upcoming Kenny Anderson Point Guard Basketball Camp, which is June 16th in Brooklyn. That will also be in the show notes, but if you want to register, go to conceptionsports.com. That's C-O-N, as in Nancy, another C like Charles, E-P-C-I-O-N sports.com. Telephone number to contact is 757-300-3970. And also check out Mr. Chibs, which is being streamed on Amazon right now through the Urban Movie Channel. There's a free trial for seven days, so just sign up. You can cancel at any time throughout those seven days. Of course, you want to see the picture at first. But uh, definitely check out Mr. Chibs. It's it's an eye-opening documentary about our uh, aforementioned guest, Kenny Anderson. Now a few hot takes here as we... uh, talk about some sports before we sign off what can you say about the Yankees winners of 15 of the last 16 games and not only that but they're winning in all types of ways they're beating people up whether it's 9-3 15-3 whatever it is you know there's a different hero each and every day night it seems whether it's Gary Sanchez in Houston hitting the three-run home in the ninth Didi Gregorius and all of the heroics that he has fashioned this early part of the season where he's probably the front runner for MVP Miguel Andujar, CC, fountain of youth, and how he's performed this year and especially last year when a lot of people thought that his career was pretty much shot and finished. Even Domingo Herman, you know, he comes in, pitches six innings, a no-hit ball yesterday to replace Jordan Montgomery, who's on the DL. And last but not least, and I'm going to get to him a little bit more later on, is Gleyber Torres. I mean, what this guy has done since he's come up has been phenomenal. A little bit of a slow start, which is normal for a kid that's Highly touted and big-time prospect that they got in the trade for Aroldis Chapman. But what he did this past weekend, huh? I tell you, we know the Yanks are loaded. We know that they're stacked. We know that they're stocked. But to see the way they performed over the last two and a half weeks has been nothing short of remarkable. Nothing. I mean, what could you say? 
when this stretch started back in Anaheim, this was a 13-game stretch where they went to Anaheim, much improved team, went to Houston for four games, rematch of the ALCS. Last time that they were there, we all know what happened, Yankee fans. Then they come home to play Cleveland this past weekend, and then they're facing the Red Sox upcoming Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, which is going to be the showdown of showdowns. And I'll get to that in a moment. But this 13-game stretch is really going to be a test because now with the Tampas and the Baltimores out of the way, they figured that this was going to be not a season-defining moment by any stretch because it's only late April into May. But you would think, okay, well, now the Yankees have struggled out of the gate. They were 9-9, nine and nine, and now let's see what they're really going to be made of here as we get into this early season strength of the schedule against the aforementioned teams during this 13-game stretch. And as of right the second... They're 9-1. and one. That's all you need to know. I even wrote on Twitter yesterday, this team is never going to lose. They're going to go 152-10. They're going to run the table the rest of the season. They're going to go 11-0 in the postseason. And they're going to be the greatest team of all time. And I understand people are going to look at that and be like, oh, please, J-Rails, you're beyond silly. Of course they're not going to go 152-10, but this team is winning in a million different ways. All you got to know about this stretch right here is Saturday's game. Saturday, they did not start Didi. They did not start Gary Sanchez. Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton went over 8 with five strikeouts between them. Sonny Gray started the game, and they still won 5-2. to two. That's all you need to know. And that's what I mean. There's another player stepping up every day, every night, one day to the next, the epitome of a team, and... Although this is the 20th anniversary of the 98 team, which a lot considered to be the greatest team of all time, and rightfully so. For the whole season, it were 125 and 50. But now, this team could blow that out of the water. And people are going to say, whoa, pump the brakes, J-Reels, relax. They are another starting pitcher from really taking off and going to a stratosphere that we haven't seen in 20 years. I mean, just look at the talent on the field. Just look at the young talent on the field. Forget about talent. You know, you could go back to that 98 team and you could look at certain guys that have been in the league for many years. Obviously, we know Bernie. That was, I guess he came up 91. So that was already his seventh year. And actually, he was going into a contract year that year. Guys like Paul O'Neill, Tino Martinez, David Cohn, David Wells just came on board who pitched the perfect game that year. You know, they had their solid veterans on the team mixed with the young guys, Posada, Mariano. We know the, we know the roster. But now you have a team where you're only hamstrung really on one contract. All right, you can say Giancarlo, but he just got here. So, and he's going to be here for the next 10 years. So that's fine. Jacoby Ellsbury, that's the only guy that you're going to really hang your hat on and say, oh, geez, this guy's a waste. Everybody else aren't making any money. They're producing far, they're exceeding their expectations far than anybody could ever imagine in Andujar and Torres. And I get it. They're going to cool off at some point. They're not going to ride this hot stretch forever. But when you're looking down the road, and especially long-term, that you still haven't paid Aaron Judge. You still haven't paid Gary Sanchez. You still haven't paid a lot of these guys. And I haven't even mentioned Tyler Austin, who's come in and stepped in and done a very nice job. So, this team is going to be relentless. Why would it stop? Of course, it's gonna have, they're going to have stretches this year. They're going to go through losing streaks, or they're going to have some bad stretches. Not everybody's going to be hot at the same time like they are right now, but... They're given no indication that this team is going to stop. And to think, the Red Sox come to town tomorrow. And who's pitching for the Red Sox tomorrow night? Huh. 
David Price. Does that game have 8-1 written all over it? Because we know David Price, when he sees the Yankees, is just is kryptonite. He could pitch well against everybody else, but the Yankees, forget about it. They, they have his number times 10. And then to think, you ready for this? To think that despite the fact that I'm not in love with their starting staff south of Luis Severino, who's been phenomenal. And I understand CC, he's been just as phenomenal. You know, nobody would expect CC at this age to be performing at this level, despite the fact that he's been in the major league 17 years and he's crafty. And, but that's the thing. He's a pitcher. He knows how to pitch. He knows he can't blow away people. He knows he has to go by guile and smarts and a little bit of gumption at times. But if they were to, able to get that stud, which they probably thought they were going to get in Sonny Gray last year from Oakland, but knowing that they have Clint Frazier in the minor leagues, another kid in Esteban Floreal, who is offensively, a lot of people say that he's just as good if not better than Miguel Andujar, if you can believe that. And they could throw another pitcher in there. You want to throw in a Justice Sheffield or Chance Adams, and I know people are going to say, whoa, you can't trade away young pitching, but... Yeah, what if you get a top-flight starter back? What if you get a guy that's a borderline one but a solid two? And people are going to say, whoa, 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 we got that solid two in Tanaka. Well, Tanaka, as good as he's been, you know he's hit or miss. You know, just when you think you're going to get the good Tanaka, all of a sudden he's giving up seven runs, four home runs, and, you know, four and a third. And I understand his pedigree, and you look at his track record, it actually, overall, he's been good. But you just never know from one game to the next what Masahiro Tanaka you're going to get. Obviously, with Sonny Gray, he's going to be more missed than hit. Domingo Germán, you can't expect him to pitch no-way ball for the rest of the season. So, with Severino and CeCe, if you get that guy that's right above, you get that two, and I know Tanaka's a two, but if you get that solid guy to slot in that rotation and trade some of those young studs that they have in the minors in a minor league system that a few years back made you kind of say, eh, you know, they're in the middle of the pack and now they're at the top of the charts. This team is going to be ready to make a, not a long postseason run, but it's almost as if that they hadn't even skipped a beat when you went from the Jeta era to now you want to call it the Judge era. And it's typical Yanks. Brian Cashman, everything he touches, you know, turns to gold. Everything is sparkling in the middle of the night. You know, even a guy like Neil Walker, who I get that he, he's been playing a lot of first base and you want to put Tyler Austin in there, but he was in the middle of the rally yesterday who scored, who drove in the run to tie the game at 4-4 in the ninth inning. Even he's made a little contribution here. So the Yanks are flying as high as they could possibly go at this point. I mean, 15 of 16, geez. That makes the paltry Met 11-1 start not only a thing of the past, but it's actually laughable at this stage of the game. Because now as I turn my attention to them, losers of six in a row, eight of the last ten, and if you thought that the designated for assignment of Matt Harvey was going to be the shakeup that this team needed, well, well, guess again. They were down 5 nothing in the first inning on Friday against Colorado before you know it. Down 8-2 to two before they made a Valiant comeback and fell one run short in the ninth inning, losing 8-7. to seven. Obviously did not show up Saturday as they got shut out 2-0. They 
they are only only the third shutout in the last four games, by the way. And then yesterday, with Noah Syndergaard on the mound, where you're thinking, okay, we could stop the bleeding. Hopefully, we could get a, a, a much-needed win before they go on the road to play six games, including three against Cincinnati, which I'll get to in a second. First three batters of the game, two-nothing match. You're thinking, all right, well, hey, maybe we could get a little breather. Not even a laugher. You know, I would, it would have been nice with a nice, tidy 5-1 victory. Syndergaard goes seven innings. You know, heavens forbid. And you could go to Cincinnati feeling a little bit better about yourself and hopefully beat up on a team that has the worst record in baseball this side of Baltimore. Let's start with Harvey. Let's go there. The last couple of podcasts, you've heard my feelings about Harvey. Remember Scott and Jerome back, I believe it was episode four, the two Met fans that I had the podcast with talking about the 2018 season. We had a very interesting text exchange where Scott was just disappointed that they released Harvey considering that they... We're going to need him at some point where Jerome was saying, are you nuts? Just look at the back of his baseball card, not just this this year, but the last two years dating back to 2016. And he's just been God awful. In fact, the one stat that I read about Harvey was amongst the, I think it was 198 pitchers since the start of 2018. He has the third worst ERA in baseball. The third worst. So he was 195 out of 198. That's all you need to know. And I gave you the reasons why in the last couple of podcasts. If you didn't, please feel free to download those. And just if you want to skip past the interviews, you could just go right to the end of the podcast. So you could get my take on Matt Harvey and how I felt about his demise. And it was time for him to leave. And sure enough, he's no longer here. But the DFA, to me, I'm glad that the Mets did it. It was time. Because when you look at the post game, especially the post game with Harvey, they've been a joke. But this one on Thursday, where the Braves came in and just embarrassed the Mets, they outscored them eighteen to nothing the last two games, twenty-one to two for the series. And all Harvey could say upon being asked about his performance coming out of the bullpen against the Braves in his last game as a Met in that uniform. He says, well, the one at bat I thought to Acuna was positive because he's been a hot hitter and we all know how good he is and talented and so on and so forth. And I was able to throw him some good pitches and was able to get him out in a big spot. All right, Matt, that was an inning of the third that you came in in the fifth inning. He had an inning of the third of solid ball. I believe he gave up a hit. Didn't walk anybody. All right. But what happened in that seventh inning? When seven of the eight guys that you faced got on base, gave up five runs, walked three. He's trying to find the most silver, silverist, if there's a word, of silver linings to his performance when he knows he gotten booed off the mound at Shea Stadium or City Field. <laughs> that goes to show you where my head is at. I'm thinking about Shea Stadium. And after hearing those comments, I thought to myself, he's got to go. I mean, that's it. I understand you're not going to look in the mirror to say, Wow, I was pathetic, I was awful, I can't seem to find myself, so on and so forth. Hey, accountability, just like we talked about earlier with Kenny Anderson. Where's that? All right, I understand he focuses a little bit on the problem, saying that, yeah, you know, I just got to work harder, yeah, I just didn't have it today. And I understand he's not going to beat himself up, but come on, let's face it. You allowed seven of eight batters get on base in that seventh inning, even after an inning in the third of clean pitching. Uh, give me a break. So it was time. It was absolutely time. And you would think that that 
would be the shakeup for this organization to say, whoa, okay, they let Matt, Matt Harvey go. Now you got to wonder, not to say that anybody else on the team is going to be next in line to go, but from the standpoint of, all right, they made a very good and a very abrupt decision. And it wasn't all on the organization. Now, mind you, Friday afternoon at 3.15, Sandy and I'm sure maybe even Mickey Calloway, they approached him to say, we're going to send you to the minors. Want to try to see if you can find yourself. Want to make sure that you could somehow, some way, get yourself right. Come back up here. Get a couple of starts. Because remember, Matt Harvey is a quote-unquote starting pitcher. For him to come up in here, for him to go down there so he could come back, fix himself, and maybe salvage the rest of the season a la Roy Halladay may rest in peace once upon a time. And Cliff Lee did once upon a time as well. Both of those guys, by the way, not only won Cy Youngs after being demoted to the minor leagues, but one of them is probably going to go in the Hall of Fame in Roy Holiday. But no, I'm Matt Harvey. I can't do that. And I understand his agent placates him and enables him to the extent where, oh, well, we know you're a starting pitcher, Matt, and we know that there's no way, shape, or form that a guy like Matt Harvey is going to go down to the minors. Scott, I understand you're going to do everything for your client. I get that. But have you seen what your client has done since the beginning of 2016? Let's face it, the last great game, or even good game, but it was great, the last good game that Matt Harvey pitched, he left his soul, heart, blood, sweat, tears, and his right arm on that mound at City Field, not Shea Stadium. Game 5, November 1st, 2015. Since then, where's, where's that guy been? Where's he been? We haven't even seen a shell of that. But no, Boris, uh, we're not going to go to the minor leagues. No way. Nobody says he's going to the minor leagues for the rest of the year. Nobody says he's going to the minor leagues until Memorial Day. Who knows? He gets a couple of starts down there. He's pitching lights out. I understand it's Las Vegas, AAA, but the ball flies out of there. So that, that, that may even be a, more of an indicator that if he he's pitches effectively and that he's able to go down there and work on his mechanics and work on his pitches, that let's say if he comes back and, wow, six innings, one run, five-hit ball, or – Seven innings, two runs, eight hits. And I understand, again, he's playing in that warm air out in Las Vegas, which is a joke, but let me not get started on that, why the Mets, you know, AAA farm team is in Las Vegas. What's next? They'll lose their contract there and go to Alaska? I mean, give me a break, but I digress. But the Mets did the right thing in letting him go. There's no ifs, ands, buts, maybes about it. Now I don't have to deal with that circus anymore. That circus is out of town. I know Scott was thinking along the lines like, oh, hey, you know, it's going to be more of a circus once he leaves because then it's going to be the speculation of, and I'm paraphrasing here, Scott, so I know you're going to be listening and you're probably going to say, no, 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 that's not the case. But Scott was pretty much pro-Harvey, and I'm certainly anti-Harvey because he hasn't done a thing. And he's just looking for excuses. And he's just looking for ways out. And I get that the incident with him going to the restaurant in L.A. the night before when they left St. Louis to go to San Diego – and mind you, he's a grown man. He could, he could do whatever he wants. But yeah, this isn't Matt Harvey circa 2013 or 2015. Why are you going to L.A. for an opening of some restaurant or whatever the report was and then coming back? And then remember, he pitched in San Diego that night. And believe he gave up a home run. And right, I don't want to attribute his late night out in L.A., but still, you want to watch a P's and Q's. This is your last year. You're going into... 
the most important year of your career if you want to make any significant type of money. So no, I'm just going to go to LA and then show up the next day. All right, I was on time. What did I do? You know, I didn't do anything wrong, which technically didn't, but guess what? You're not the same guy. You're not the same pitcher. All right, enough about Matt Harvey. Now, let's get to what's really going on. This team. It's time for the front office to engage in some sort of correspondence with some teams out there to bring in some talent. And I understand it's only, as I'm recording this, May 7th. And a lot of trades aren't going to be made now. I know once you get into past Memorial Day into June, and of course with the deadline at the end of July, things will heat up. But there are some glaring, egregious, I'll even say, holes in this team. And the first one is the catcher. I'm sorry, no offense to uh, Jose Lobaton or Tomas Nito. They got to go. I get that when you deal with guys like Kevin Ploiecki, who hasn't really flourished and hasn't, not to say he's a top prospect, but, you know, he hasn't really lived up to what a lot of people thought he could be on this team. Travis Darnos, we all know the big piece in that trade, Ari Dickey, him coming to New York with Noah Syndergaard. He's shown flashes, especially at the plate. Behind the plate, he is not good. I mean, I'm sorry. Sorry, Travis. Nice guy. I know you've had big hits in certain spots, but no good. And he's always hurt, which obviously he's out the rest of the season with the bad elbow. So they got to start somewhere else. I understand you don't want to, it may be a reach to go to Panama to pluck Carlos Ruiz and bring him to a team. I believe he's 38 years old. He's not going to hit much. He'll probably hit a lot better than the combination of Lobotone and Nito, that's for sure. And he knows how to handle a pitching staff. So I think the staff would also be much improved by having a guy like that on your team. You could also go to Tampa to see if you could pluck Wilson Ramos, who has been a Met killer his whole life when he played for the Nationals. But of course, the Mets will get him and he'll do a 180. He'll have the same batting averages as Nito and Lobatono, bat around 150. He won't be able to throw a runner out, can't block a ball. And there we go, back to the drawing board. But guess what? Those are guys that they could get right now. Nobody's saying that you got to go out, or, you know, if you want to get Jonathan Lucroy from the A's, I understand it's going to cost you a little bit much. And the Mets do not have much of a farm system, as we well know. But if you can't get a guy like Jonathan Lucroy right now, because you know the A's are going to want to try to fleece as much as they can, young talent well, whatever talent that the Mets have in the minor leagues, then go out and try to get a Wilson Ramos. Try to get a guy that's going to be a serviceable major league catcher. Not a guy who can't even even hit his weight. Like the old joke, my good old Met fan friend John Guerrero once said, whatever Thomas Nito is batting right now, 135, 150, it's like, oh, God, this guy's batting 150, and that's, you know, he's batting 150 points, Higher than I am, and I don't even play. And that's the truth. So what? He threw out a couple of runners a couple of weeks back, which was, let me tell you something, you almost had to rub your eyes to make sure that you were watching correctly as a Met catcher threw out base dealers on the base paths. But Sandy and company, they got to start scratching, clawing. They got to start going out there to, to find a catcher because this is not going to sustain. It, it's bad enough to sustain this long. Well, it's certainly not going to sustain a lot much longer. So they need to go out there and find a catcher. Number one, what are you going to do about first base? 
I get that Adrian Gonzalez has had some a few big hits here, but he's batting 230, 36 years old. This isn't going to last. Before you know it, he's going to be 220, 210, and then what? Is Dom Smith going to be ready to come back up here? Nobody says you got to go out and get a top flight first baseman because if Dom Smith is going to be your first baseman of the future, then get somebody to stopgap. Off the top of my head, I can't think of one, but again, you got to go out and get reinforcements in some way, shape, or form. And now, I got to get to Ahmed Rosario. And this is where we're going to make the comparison. I saw this on Twitter yesterday, which I thought was fascinating. Ahmed Rosario, who last year was a top three prospect in the major leagues, along with Gleyber Torres and Ronald Acuna. Of the Yankees and the Braves, respectively. Of course, we know about Gleyber Torres. But my point is, he has not been a factor in this lineup. We understand we're not going to see market improvement from a guy who we got to see flashes last year, raw ability, fast as lightning. Glove was, eh, was iffy this year. You know, you could, hey, the, the kid is raw. The kid can play. I'm not saying he cannot. But when you look at what Gleyber Torres did this weekend against the Indians where he hit his first major league home run and not only that, hit a walk-off home run yesterday, and you see the poise and the professionalism and the charisma of a kid who's 21. He might, he might as well be 31. He's done more this weekend than Ahmed Rosario has done since he was called up a year ago. Ahmed has done nothing. He's undisciplined at the plate, as we all know. Again, I, I, we, he's raw. He's raw. It's going to take us some time. He's still young. He's 22 years old. I get that. But how is it that Torres just comes in and he's coming to a stacked deck. We get that. So people could argue, oh, but come on, look what he's playing with. He's playing with all these other guys. He doesn't have to be the main guy. I get that. But nobody's saying Rosario has to be the main guy. Nobody's saying that this is the one that's going to carry us to the promised land. But when you look at it, him being a top-ranked prospect, him coming up a year ago so he has a little bit more service than Torres does, and Torres just... Takes the weekend by storm. He is pretty much the story of the weekend in this hot Yankee run. And then Rosario, he's swinging at pitches above his head, fishing for pitches low and outside. Doesn't walk to save his life. I think the last big run he drove in was the first homestand of the year. Where's the improvement? Where's the production? Gleiber comes in and, hey, why not? All right, yeah, I've had a little struggles here, but he's been here five minutes. You know, Rosario looks like he just got called up yesterday. So Rosario, and listen, we know that this kid is going to be the future of this team, or part of it at least. And nobody's saying that this guy has to mash home runs. He's not a home run hitter. I mean, he's hit a few home runs last year. I get that. But no, you want to see some improvement at the plate. You want to see him go the other way. You want to see him just be a much more disciplined hitter. And I understand it doesn't happen overnight. I understand it doesn't happen in a week or whatever. But you would think... That by now, he'd have a little bit of sense that, okay. And, and nobody's asking him to be the savior. Nobody's asking him that he has to hit home runs. Maybe he's putting pressure on himself. Maybe he's squeezing the bat a little too tight. I don't know. That's what the batting coaches are for. That's what the manager's for. But it's almost as if like he hasn't gotten it yet. Whereas Gliver comes in and it's like, oh, wait, wait. All right, here we go. Home run here. Game-winning home run there. Slick fielding play here. I just... But that's the thing. That's the difference between the Yankees and the Mets. 
The Mets could have Acuna, Ozzy Albies, Glaber Torres, you know, on their team. And you know what? They'll find a way to screw it up. They'll either be injured. They'll send them up and down a million times. They'll end up trading them. And they'll flourish elsewhere. That's just that's typical. And I haven't even gotten into Syndergaard, who has not pitched well for him. You know, he goes six inning all the times, max out. Yesterday, he only had one pitch or one fastball that he threw was a swing and miss. Everything else was contact. Now you have to wonder about Jake's arm because of an at-bat. An at-bat. He hyperextended his elbow because of an at-bat. That's typical Mets. It's a macrocosm of this Met team. You know, when does it stop? When does it end? You know, I haven't even talked about Conforto. I mean, Conforto, who knows if he's having any after effects of the shoulder. He's batting 184. The only bright spots on this team are Zubo Cabrera, which a lot of people thought he was going to be gone. Remember last year, all those comments that, oh, I want my option picked up, and he was sour about playing second base. The guy's been our best player. And Todd Frazier. Five homers, 21 RBIs, gotten big hits. People will look at the average. Oh, he's only batting 250, J-Reels. Well, guess what? A lot of people thought he was going to bat 210. So 250 is like batting 300 for Todd Frazier. I tell you, it's... Uh, what could you say? Uh, and then now, here's the thing. They go to Cincinnati. Okay? 8-26. and 26. Can the Mets win two out of three? Is it going to be that hard? Now, mind you, they're starting a guy in P.J. Conlon. is going to be his first major league start, or I believe his debut tonight, against a red team that has some hitters. You know, not to get crazy. This isn't a big red machine, but still. I mean, nerves, whatever it may be. But can they win two out of three? Is that asking the world against a team that only has eight wins? Sadly, I mean, I have to take two out of three. You know, but if, they're, if they somehow, way lose two out of three, in this series, I, I, I don't even know what I'll do. But you know what? What's even more appalling? And, and this, now let this sink in. Met fans, baseball fans, Yankee fans. I know all the Yankee fans are laughing right now at what I'm saying, but that's fine. But think about this. After the last, whatever, eight, ten minutes that I spent railing against the Mets, this team is one and a half games back in first place. One and a half. By the way, I'm speaking about this Met team, you would think they're 30 games back. Oh, you would think that, oh, forget about it. They're, they're 10 games back. The Nats have taken off. You know, Atlanta's still in first place. Philly's much improved. No, they're a game and a half back. Even after that 11-1 start and they're 6-14 since then, they are a game and a half back. Despite this rant, goes to show you, people, it's a long season. It's only May 7th. And you would, it's been a tale of two seasons. Mets are 11-1. They're never going to lose. Now they're 6-14, and 14, they're never going to win. Just like the Yankees, 9-9. Nine and nine. Giancarlo's starting off slow. Oh, my God, what's happening? Sky's falling. Now they're never going to lose. There's a lot of baseball left on the table. Let's just hope that the New York Mets and their front office start turning this around and soon before their season is left on that same aforementioned table. All right, quickly through a few other things. NBA, uh, no theater in the second round at all, which is not good for the league, but you're going to have, based on what's been transpiring in the second round, not to go and look ahead, but I'll start out west. Golden State, after a pathetic performance in game number three down in New Orleans, where 
Draymond Green had sent a text to Kevin Durant at 4 a.m. Supposedly, I guess Kevin Durant had a subpar game for him. I think 19 points, didn't really shoot well. Saying that, hey, man, this is where you got to step up. This is where we need you. And Kevin Durant said, I got it. And sure enough, he got it, all right, as they blew out the Pelicans, which were pretty much iced that series going back to game five in uh, the Bay Area. Houston, after losing game two at home, by a remarkable performance by Donovan Mitchell, had taken the next two games in Utah, so you would think that they're going to wrap up that series, which would lead to a mega conference final, which a lot of people think it's going to be the NBA finals. And hey, let that, let that be the case. The two top teams uh, in the NBA, and I'll say it again, right now, to me, I think Golden State's going to win. Uh, we talked about it a couple podcasts ago. I do not trust Chris Paul in a big spot. I do not trust James Harden in a big spot, nor... Uh, the coach, Mike D'Antoni. So we'll see. We'll see what's going to happen. Curry had that big game, two upon coming back against the Pelicans. So now they're both one game away from meeting in the Western Conference Finals, then back east. What could you say about Cleveland? Is it more of an indictment on Toronto? Listen, they have a lot to go around to be blamed for their pathetic performance here. I mean, what can you say? They've just been terrible. DeRozan has been awful. He was relegated to the bench in game three where he says, you know, it sucked being on the bench. Well, guess what? The immortal words I've said it time and time again of Walt Frazier. You can make your name in the, po- in the regular season. You make your fame in the postseason. DeRozan has done zero in this postseason to make you believe that top player in the league, yeah, but he's not a top flight player in that regard. So now they're just one game away from being swept again from the second straight year by the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron his mastery continues another last second shot a dominant game two which he was just toying with the with the Raptors on their home court fadeaways and crazy shots 43 points it's amazing what he's done and then we focus our attention to the Celtics and Sixers and I've been as shocked as as anybody but when you look at the last two games in particular all right game one you could say they had six days off were they prepared? Yes, but maybe they were lagging a little bit. Whatever it was, they lost 117-101. All right, you can let that slide. On the road, fine. Game two, they were up 51-31 in the second quarter, and then the Celtics blitzed them the rest of the second half, continued to keep the pressure on, played well, won the game uh, there at the end, and up to love in the series. As far as game three is concerned, tooth and nail, back and forth, I don't know what Brett Brown was thinking on that inbounds pass at the end of regulation. Why he chose to have J.J. Redick pass at the top of the key looking for Ben Simmons, where Ben Simmons was going one way. It made you think that, wait a second, you know why, why couldn't Redick get the ball back to Simmons and then either try to find J.J. off a screen or go down low to Joel Embiid for the game-winning shot? Didn't happen. In fact, the Celtics went down the other way with the turnover, got the layup with 1.5. Then Ilyasova hit the game-tying shot at the buzzer. Confetti comes down, which right away you just knew. And I saw, what is this confetti? What's going on? That was the kiss of death for the Sixers. And in essence, almost pretty much like the same play there toward the end of the first overtime where another inbounds pass going to Joel Embiid at the top of the key gets stolen where Horford lays it in, I, I don't know what, what Brett Brown was thinking on his inbounds play. He's certainly the antithesis of Brad Stevens when coming out of a timeout. But Philly certainly shot themselves, and 
blew pretty much any chance. Now, again, this series is far from over. You're not going to look at me as a Celtic fan and say, oh, this is over. All I got to do is win the one game. They had the talent. Simmons, I will say this about Ben Simmons, as talented as great as he is, we all know he needs to develop a jump shot, but he is nuts for not trying to back up the Terry Rozier's of the world into the paint and do just a little jump hook or whatever it is. He's 6'10". That's something he has to work on his, in, during the offseason because he could post up anybody and try to just go for a little jump hook, a little fadeaway, whatever it is. I understand people are in love with the three-point shot and it's the way the league is right now, but no. What you need to do at this stage of the game if you're Ben Simmons is just develop that low post game. I understand Embiid. He's another one. Embiid's always on the perimeter, it seems, especially in game two, chucking threes. No, he needs to be in the low block. And to me, that's more of a detriment to their team than it is uh, you know, a positive. But as far as Simmons is concerned, as wonderfully talented as he is and being that floor general, and I don't think LeBron should go there, or I don't think the Sixers should even entertain the thought of having LeBron go there because you want the ball in Ben Simmons' hands. But he needs to develop that post game in the worst way and just a mid-range game. Because if he does that, he'll be unstoppable. Nobody needs for him to be chucking three-pointers. No, we don't want Ben Simmons doing that. With his size, and I'm sure he's going to continue to get stronger, have him on the low block, and that's it. You'll waste teams that way. So that's one thing he needs to improve this coming off season. As far as the Knicks, David Fisdale, I know he's well-respected around the league, especially when you look at the guys like LeBron James and Dwayne Wade, who played for him when he was assistant coach down in Miami. But when the Knicks and their fans, I'm sure they were probably salivating at the thought of bringing back Mark Jackson or Jeff Van Gundy. Do I think Fisdale's the right hire? I don't know. That remains to be seen. You know, he's the type of guy where he's a no-nonsense guy, says it like it is. LeBron James respects that, and he saw that in Fisdale. But obviously the situation with Marcus Gasol, he didn't look at it that way. And how I look at it is, who is Marcus Gasol? to come out and try to challenge the coach or not adhere to what he's trying to say. Listen, all players are going to get frustrated. All players are going to you know, look at the coach and say, ah, they're going to want to do what they want to do best, but still he is the coach. But who's Marcus Ola to determine that? And a lot of people think that what's going to happen when Chris Porzingis is healthy and David Fisdale is going to be that type of guy who's going to go maybe not face-to-face, but maybe chest-to-face, or you know, understand what I'm saying. Him trying to call him out on the carpet to say, hey, Kristaps, get back on defense. Hey, Kristaps, that was a terrible shot. You know, how is he going to take that? You know, is he going to look at that and say, oh, hey, coach, you know, uh, you know, I'm doing my best here. No. Fisdale obviously has a track record. Maybe he was let go too soon in Memphis. Obviously, you're not going to let go of Gasol. So they figured, hey, thanks, Coach Fisdale, but here are your walking papers. But I think it's a good hire from this standpoint. If he's going to be a guy that's going to be no-nonsense, hard-nosed, and he's a young guy and well-respected throughout the league, then guess what? If he's going to put his foot down and try to get that stamp of approval early, then that's the type of coach you want. Because these players, coaches, and any sport, it just doesn't work in the long run. Because it's all about winning. It's all about getting to the postseason. It's all about trying to make a long run and eventually getting that title. So in that regard, I think it's good. You know, Mark Jackson would have come here, if he would have come here, and despite the fact of what you heard, all the rumors and everything that happened out in Golden State, despite the fact of developing players like Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, but rubbed everybody else the wrong way, you don't want a guy like that here, even if he is a Nick. 
know, Jeff Van Gundy, been there, done that. Do you want to do that again? So I think they went the right route by not bringing in a retread, which a lot of people could say, well, look at Fizdale, he's a retread. Well, he was only in Memphis for a year and a handful of games. You know, give the guy a break. You know, it's not like Van Gundy's been in two other stops, despite the fact that he's a Nick, but he's been in two other places before coming here, if that was the case. Or Mark Jackson, who had his tenure there in Golden State. I believe he deserves another chance, but his chance isn't here right now. So that's my feeling about the Nick hire. Quickly with the NHL, Tampa beats Boston to the chagrin of my cousin JD, who hopefully I'll get on the air in a couple weeks. I'll get to that in a minute. Tampa beats the Boston Bruins four games to one. So now they await the winner of the Washington Capitals and Pittsburgh Penguins where the Caps took a 3-2 series lead Saturday night, game six tonight in Pittsburgh. And just like I said in the last series on my next-to-last podcast, if you're the Capitals, you want to close this out tonight. Don't play with a game seven in your building. You've lost two game sevens to the Penguins in your own building as it is in the Ovechkin era. You do not want to go there again. Win the series Move on, play Tampa, make it to the conference finals for the first time in Alexander Ovechkin's career, and take it from there. That's it. And out west, Winnipeg and Nashville, game six in Winnipeg tonight as they look to go to a conference final for the first time in, geez, going back to the Winnipeg Jets of the Dale Howardchuck days. I don't even think they even made it to a conference final. So this will probably be the first, or will certainly be the first time of this iteration of the franchise since they moved from Atlanta. But the Vegas team, who beat San Jose yesterday to win their series 4-2, I right, think about this, not to go back to the Mets, but a Met fan on Twitter said, Vegas is going to the conference finals in their first year of existence where the Mets and the Islanders combined have done less with a whole lot more than Vegas has done in one year, which <laughs> he's not right. I mean, he's not wrong. He is not wrong. Sad to say. But uh, Winnipeg could close out their series tonight against Nashville. And uh, they'll await the winner of Vegas. And I tell you right now, if you're NBC, I know you're crossing your fingers, toes, eyes, and hoping that Pittsburgh pulls out the series because you'd want to see Pittsburgh and Vegas. I think if Washington were to make it to the Stanley Cup final and played against Vegas, that wouldn't be too bad because Washington has Ovechkin. He's a top-flight player. Uh, nation's capital. I understand it's not a hockey hotbed as far as, you know, it's not Boston, it's not Chicago, it's not Detroit. You know, Pittsburgh's going for a third straight Stanley Cup. So that's why they'd want to have Pittsburgh there and go up against Vegas. And not only that, but the goaltender, Marc-Andre Fleury, who played for the Penguins his whole career until going in the expansion draft to the Vegas Golden Knights, that would be a storyline to watch. I'm sure they're hoping and praying that Pittsburgh pulls out the series in some way, shape, or form. But if not, they'd want the Capitals there. Because could you imagine a Tampa, Tampa-Vegas Still not sexy, but could you imagine a Tampa-Winnipeg Stanley Cup final? They'd be choking on their filet mignon or chicken cordon bleu with the all-grotten mashed potatoes. Gary Bettman would be doing the same thing. Trying to wash that down with a little Pinot Grigio, but uh uh-uh. Tampa and Winnipeg in a Stanley Cup final? That's like Ottawa-Anaheim 2007. I tell you. All right, also Justify wins the Derby, which was the front runner, the odds-on favorite to win. So the Preakness a week from this coming Saturday, we'll all take our eyes on that. And uh, absolutely, when it comes to the program, uh, anything, 
you want to uh, check out old shows, information about me, information about the program, you go to www.jreels.com. I'm hoping to get JD. Uh, my thoughts and prayers are with him as he had some uh, emergency surgery. Uh, thankfully, nothing life-threatening. Just had some uh, so a gallbladder that uh, I believe needs to be removed. So I hope he's resting comfortably and recouping slowly but surely because uh, not only do I need him back in my life, most importantly, but I've been waiting to have him to come on the program. So I hope he's doing well, and we'll get him back uh, on the airwaves at some time in the near future. Also, all the links there from my social media accounts, whether it's Instagram, J Reels, Twitter, J Reels One, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, of course. Check on those for any posts, updates, things going on with the show, guests, life, whatever it may be. Please follow that there. If you want to send an email, please feel free to do so at the J podcast at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, please feel free to uh, give me a shout there. And uh, also, people, most importantly, all that being said, please subscribe. All you got to do is go on your phone, iPhone users. There's a podcast app on your phone. Hit that. Type in, in the search engine, the J podcast. Hit subscribe. I have all my previous shows there. Of course, they're on my website as well, but mobile when you're commuting to work or you're going to the gym you're running on a treadmill or even if you're taking a run out in the street make sure you have your volume on not high enough because you want to you know we want you around so we don't want you getting hit by bicyclists or worse by uh other commuters driving vehicles but please feel free to subscribe leave a post a rating comment anything uh because again your contribution in doing that will not only Gain visibility amongst the podcast universe for the sports and professional uh, category, but uh, would also attract more guests and will gain, like I said, a lot more visibility and a lot more attention and attraction to those out there who listen to podcasts because, as we all know, it is a dominant and enormous platform as it is today. And, uh, yeah, so I'm working on some guests for next week, so please stay tuned in all those aforementioned sites and links for any latest and greatest of what's going on with the podcast. As always, I want to thank everybody for just taking a few minutes of their precious day to uh, download and listen to the program. As you know, I'm forever grateful and thankful. Please share the word with everybody who loves sports, knows sports, would be interested in learning more about sports as you introduce the J Reels podcast to those uh, loved ones. And uh, again, I'm forever indebted for you sharing the links, the websites, the everything pertaining to the program. Uh, as I like to say, thank you twice more than once. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until the next time, on the flip, baby.